spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Sister Zainab Ansari is the daughter of converts, an African-American mother and a Lebanese-American father. Her parents converted to Islam in the 1970s and met Imam Zaid Shakir during the latter part of the decade. The impact of Imam Zaid's friendship with her parents was profound and their spiritual journeys became deeply intertwined. When Asada Zainab was in her late teens, her parents wanted her to study Islam, so the family moved to Iran for a few years, and later, at the advice of Imam Zaid and his wife Um Hassan, Asada Zainab and her sister were enrolled at Abu Nur College in Damascus, Syria. She returned to the United States after over four years of study in Syria and enrolled at Georgia State University, where she earned degrees in history and Middle Eastern studies. During this time, she started a family and was invited to volunteer for the pioneering Sunni Path Answer Service. Ustada Zainab describes herself as a late bloomer. She felt intellectually and academically stimulated as a student in Damascus, but it wasn't until her late 30s that she had a spiritual awakening, what she refers to as a Ghazalian moment of realization that what she was teaching was not necessarily being translated into her own life. Today, Ustada Zainab is the woman scholar-in-residence at Thaisir Seminary, where she teaches and mentors students under the guidance of Sheikh Hassan al She also offers presentations, workshops, and classes for a number of other organizations, including for the Rabath program founded by her teacher, Dr. Tamara Gray. In this episode, she opens up about and reflects on the tragic death of her husband over five years ago. She also discusses the benefits of having female-only learning spaces and the importance of female role models and spiritual guides. Alhamdulillah, my family has always been uh, deeply religious, and that's because my parents both converted to Islam. So it's it's interesting because, you know, we often hear about sort of a dichotomy between uh, being religious and spiritual, but, um, you know, I, I came up in a household where Rituals were very important in terms of strict adherence to the ritual practices of Islam. But even though my parents were, I would say, more um, in their, especially in their younger days, in the activist mode, I always found that they were very receptive to, to Islamic spirituality. And even traditional modes of spirituality before, I think there was um, more balanced awareness of the of the of the importance of tasawwuf and of the really the the sort of shara'i origins of the science of tasawwuf and ihsan so i alhamdulillah I consider myself very fortunate in that 
as, as, as the daughter of converts, that I was a first-hand uh, witness to my parents' own mm. religious and spiritual journey. And really, it's impossible for me to talk about my journey without centering their journey, because my story is their story. It really goes back to how they became Muslims in the 1970s. Um, beautiful. Can you can you expand on that a little more? I'd love to hear about their story as well and, and how that influenced you. Sure. You know, so the I, I always like to, uh, you know, I, I, I always like to share, you know, Sister Hiba with, um, you know, when I sit down and talk about about my my journey and my family that I think cultural and social and political context are so important in helping mm -hmm. In helping people to understand, especially people that are not from the United States, or um, you know, especially for transnational Muslims, where often religious identity is very strongly associated with ethnic identity. So, for example, in many countries in the Muslim world, you know, there's not, or even in countries in the Muslim world where you have significant minorities. There's very little crossing of what I'm going to call confessional lines. So my father's background, for example, is Lebanese. And his story of embracing Islam, I don't know that that, that story would have been possible if, his, if he had remained in Lebanon. He was born to a, a Syrian Orthodox family. And... Again, you don't really cross those boundaries mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 in countries in the Middle East. It's just, it's very unusual. You might hear, you might, here and there, you might hear about stories of conversion. But I think that there is something that is uniquely American about my parents' story. And it's something that I'm very appreciative of. And I want, I want our audience members to understand that there's a, cer there's a certain fluidity and the American religious landscape mm -hmm. that made it possible for my parents to explore other faith traditions and to ultimately become Muslim. And I know in my father's case, if he had remained in this tiny little village, very picturesque village in the Baqaq Valley in Lebanon, I don't know that he ever would have become a Muslim. So my parents' journey is one that is just, um, it's fascinating on so many levels. And I always like to share that my mother is the one that gave da'wah to my father. And my mother was born in Detroit, Michigan, in an African-American family. And uh, my grandmother on my, on my mother's side uh, was Southern Baptist. And my mother uh, ultimately decided to become an Episcopalian. And my mother being a young African-American woman coming of age in the, in the 1960s, you know, for anybody that's a student of, of U.S. history, you know, that's a very, it was a very important time, quite tumultuous in terms of the civil rights struggle, student protests against the war in Vietnam. So that's the environment that really shaped my parents and especially my mother, given that she also embrace this burgeoning awareness amongst African-Americans of an Islamic past. You know, so for example, even though my mother was too young to have actually 
attended uh, a speech of Shaheed Malcolm X, a lawyer Hemel, or met him, you know, she and my dad were definitely aware of his impact. And I know she read the autobiography, um, you know, of, of Malcolm X. So my mother came up in a time when a lot of young African-Americans were searching beyond the Christian church and changing their names. So my mother embraced uh, a name that was different from her birth name. In her quest to reconnect to her African heritage, she actually chose a Swahili name even before she became Muslim. And I think my mother's journey really, I think, encapsulates the receptivity of many African-Americans of that era to Islam. Mm -hmm. So she, her journey ended up taking her really all over the world, uh, including Morocco, by the way, where she and my dad first um, spent time in a Muslim majority society. And, uh, and, and ultimately my mother ended up, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's an amazing journey, but her path took her to Southern Spain uh, where she was uh, studying or hoping to study under somebody that, uh, that, that presented himself as kind of a new age guru. And she realized that this person was not his, um, his conduct was not consistent with the, with the, the, the teachings that he was uh, espousing. And she remembered just at that moment being stranded in Southern Spain, not being able to get back to the United States and making a dua that if Allah Ta'ala allowed her to come back to the U.S., that she would become a Muslim because she realized that Islam was what she was, uh, was the truth. And that's what she was seeking. So she came back to the United States and by the mid 1970s, she'd become a Muslim. Now my parents had married as non-Muslims. So my mother was very much about, um, um, enter into Islam wholeheartedly. So she was never, uh, on the fence about things. It was never kind of half in, half out. It was like, do this all the way. So she informed my dad that they couldn't be together anymore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's so interesting when you look at the advice given nowadays to converts about what to, how to manage a situation where say the wife is Muslim and the husband isn't. And some people kind of uh, say, well, kind of take a gradual approach to that my mother was like, nope, we can't be together. So they separated. And she continued to give him Dawa, which I'm so happy that she did. And I think my parents still have the copy of the Yusuf, the Abdullah Yusuf Ali Quran that my mother sent to my father. She'd send him, alhamdulillah, this was before the age of email. So she would send him actual letters. And I believe he kept those letters. And it got to a point where he got tired of the letters and he was going to, uh, he traveled one day to, to meet her to say, you know, this is just uh, not going to work out. And um, his, his journey, mashallah, where, where my mother's quest was very much the, the quest of the seeker and she read widely and spoke to people and met with people. My dad's uh, conversion to Islam, which he doesn't really share often, <laughs> but I, I wish he'd talk more about it. It's an example. It's almost like a Sayyidina Amar moment where, what, where the heart is changed mm -hmm. on the spot because he was telling my mother, this is over. And then Next thing, she describes his face changes and his features soften and his voice softens. And he says, of course, I want to be a Muslim. Of course, I want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, yeah, he takes his shahada. And then about, yeah, about three or four years later, I was born. 
And then two years after that, my sister was born. Wow, that's such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing, um, you know, all that incredible family history and even, um, you know, your parents' backgrounds are, are so different. It must be um, so interesting, like how th that, like those melding of cultures and, and all of that context is, is so beautiful and important. Um, the next question is more um, about you. Um, you know, what has your own journey been like? When did Islam become, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you were always, your family was always kind of religious and, and, and the Sawaf was very integrated in your family. But, um, you know, when did Islam become like important to you? Were there any pivotal moments that you can remember? You know, that, that's interesting because I don't, I, my, I, my pivotal moment comes much later on in life. I guess I'm a late bloomer because, you know, again, as the, the daughter of converts, and there's something about that class of converts, mashallah, if you will, <laughs> Um, of the, you know, the, from the 1960s and 1970s, I mean, they were, I mean, they were so ardent, mashallah, I mean, so deeply committed. Um, and they were, you know, they're becoming Muslim during a time when you didn't have all these books, and there were no Dean intensives, and you didn't have the internet. And you literally had to go and, and, and seek out teachers. Um, you know, my mom mentions trying to figure out how to make wudu from the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, you know, wow. I mean, my dad, you know, has this funny story about how he couldn't make wudu as a new Muslim because he had eczema. So he would carry he would carry around a brick because someone had told him if you just have this brick, you can make wudu your tayammum, but you have to have this brick with you everywhere. You know, so uh, it's just subhanAllah. I feel like their generation had so much barakah because, you know, in spite of the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the lack of access to the abundance of knowledge we have today, mashallah, they were, they were so deeply rooted in their faith. And I find conversely today, we are inundated with information, but so many of us are struggling. So I just, I just wanted to put that out there. So again, Islamic identity was something that was deeply instilled in me and my sister from an early age. And my parents were very politically active. We have to understand the 1970s is a, just a huge time for this idea of a reawakening of Muslim uh, consciousness. And one of the things that um, was so incredibly formative for my parents was in 1979, when uh, the Islamic revolution in Iran took place. And actually we stayed, we lived in Iran for a number of years. So that was very much a part of my journey. So, um, so that's why I say I was a late bloomer in the sense that, mashallah, all of this was kind of given to me on a silver platter, right? In terms of a household that everything was about Islam and living um, and living out Islam and spending time in the uh, Muslim world and having parents that were really politically active and aware. You know, I remember, I mean, Imam Zaid Shakir and um, Um Hassan, his wife, may Allah preserve them, you know, my parents um, met them when they first became Muslim. So, you know, I, they, they like to kind of share these stories about, you know, I'd be in my stroller and we'd be, at some <laughs> we'd be at some demonstration somewhere. So, you know, it was like that. It was very intense, mashallah. So I, I think for me, my pivotal moment, it didn't even come in, in, in Damascus. And I, I have some regret about that because you think that maybe I would have my kind of road to Damascus experience, but it wasn't even in Syria. Um, my pivotal moment came a lot later through an experience of tragedy when I was widowed um, at the age of 38, to be very honest. 
you know, after having taken now over five years to process it, I think there are lessons that are helpful for me and, and, and others. But, you know, again, my, my, so my, my journey, so my parents and my mother, especially, you know, they were very committed to the idea of education for their daughters. And that's what, how we ended up going overseas first to Iran and to Syria, which by the way, I understand that is a very, very sensitive conversation in this day and, and this day and age, given what happened in Syria in 2011 and given the geopolitics of it. So I want, you know, our audience to understand that, you know, we, this was, uh, we're, this is the 1990s I'm talking about. We spent time in, in, in the Middle East and the, in the, in the, really the better part of that decade of the 90s. We were overseas, then we came back to the U.S. in the early aughts. So, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, so when I came back to the United States, um, I went to college. Um, I was a bit older than my classmates, but, you know, went to college. Um, met my, um, you know, met, met the man who became my husband, um, Alayr Hamou, started a family. Um, and then I started to teach first locally in Atlanta, Georgia, that's in the Southeast of the United States. Um, Atlanta has, has an historic African-American Muslim community, by the way, which I think is, it should, you know, something that I, that I would like our audience to, to be aware of. I think that's something that, you know, especially if there are people that are listening who are international, they might not be aware of that history. So just to know that, you know, it's the center of the civil, of the civil rights movement, the birthplace of, of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so I think we should kind of all be aware of that, you know. Uh, so, so it was, uh, you know, I started to teach, uh, you know, kind of in and around Atlanta. And then uh, that led to doing some work online for Sunni Path, which became Qibla for the Islamic Sciences. So, um, and it was interesting in that I didn't, coming back from Syria, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that many of the women that came back from studying that we had a clear idea of what we would do next. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I didn't because I was very young. I was only 18, 19 when I went to Syria. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, <laughs> subhanAllah, in hindsight, it's kind of like you, I wish I'd been a little bit older and more mature, to be honest, when I went to Syria, but that's what Allah Ta'ala wrote, that I would have that experience as a 19-year-old. And we were there for about four and a half years. Um, the, the whole family, we actually stayed there, um, my parents, my younger sister. Um, so coming back, I think I just kind of had more you know, I was definitely interested in starting a family that would have been, you know, pretty typical for somebody my age. Mm-hmm. But then the uh, brother Zahir, who was active with Sunni Path, and uh, and also he, he's a, a student of Sheikh Noor, and, you know, mentioned, well, we're doing this initiative here. And, uh, and we have people that are going to be kind of writing in with questions. And we just thought maybe you could help us answer some of these questions coming in from people. And he presented it as, I'm not kidding, he said the Muslim version of Dear Abby. You know those newspaper <laughs> yeah. you know, where, I, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't remember Abby's real name, but, you know, she'd write under that pseudonym and people would ask her for advice about different things. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how he presented it. But mashallah, I mean, it, 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 it kind of started that way. But I remember, um, you know, Sheikh Faraz Rabbani, may Allah preserve him, was one of the, the original kind of founders, I think, of the academic side of um, Sunni Path. So I remember kind of being a TA and then actually teaching classes. So that's really kind of how I, I got, you know, my start. So, and then mashallah just went from there. Um, I remember being invited to uh, to Knoxville, Tennessee. So, so I started to write and kind of TA and volunteer for Sunni Path um, around 2004. And then mashallah, I joined the teaching staff around 2007 or so, did that for a couple of years. And then by 2010, 
the uh, one of our communities here in the southeast, this in this case Knoxville, Tennessee, the Muslim community of Knoxville partnered with Seek that so then Sheikh Faraz with the Seekers Guidance they partnered with Seekers Guidance and they, they said let's do a retreat. So mm -hmm. I remember being invited to teach, and uh, I was there with my husband and our children who were very young at the time, and it was just so exciting to see um, Sheikh Faraz and his family. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and I think subhanAllah, that sort of, that, that kind of brought our family to Knoxville. But my point is to kind of get back to that question about when Islam becomes pivotal for me is that I'm doing all this teaching, like I'm just kind of, alhamdulillah, there's a lot of continuity between Syria and what I'm doing in the United States in terms of teaching and da'way and um, being in the, those circles, you know, uh, but then I realized there was a, a moment where Imam Zaid calls it a very Ghazalian moment, you know, <laughs> but there's a moment when I realized um, this is just really a lot of it is kind of a, an academic exercise for me. Mm. You know, I eat intellectually, it's sort of very fulfilling, but beyond that, am I really translating what I'm doing as a teacher to my actual mm. experience? And that really kind of changed overnight, to be honest, um, in October 2015, um, when my husband um, was was involved in a motorcycle accident, um, and he never came home. And um, the accident happened, you know, I remember this like it was yesterday, it happened on a Monday night. And by Friday morning, he passed away. And then I found myself overnight, uh, a widow and my children without a father, um, and it definitely, um, you know, set me on a, on a path of some really kind of intense uh, and really existential questioning of everything. So I think that would be my, my pivotal moment. And it doesn't happen until I'm 38. So again, this idea of kind of being a late bloomer. Thank you for, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's not easy to, to talk about. Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant your late husband, the highest levels of Jannah. I mean, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit. Um, I was hoping you could talk about some of your teachers in Damascus. Absolutely. So, you know, it, it's so interesting because, uh, you know, if I'm going to be completely, if I'm going to be completely honest, it's, um, it was not my idea to go and study. It was my mother's. So, and I, I, I have to say that because I want her, you know, I want her to receive the credit of that because even though she did not get a chance to study in the kind of very um, intensive way and immersive way that my sister and I did, you know, mashallah, she ended up uh, working and teaching English and became very beloved to her, mm -hmm. her Syrian students. But I really, I, I know that, you know, any, any, any ajr that my sister and I, you know, may, might receive for that. And I, I pray there's some ajr there. I, 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 the, it all, you know, it all goes back to my parents. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I think, you know, to be honest, alhamdulillah, I mean, looking back, I'm so happy that we went when we did. I remember Imam Zaid, uh, may Allah preserve Allah saying that, this moment is never, ever, ever going to come back. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. It's just really, it's very emotional. Um, it's, it's, it's very emotional when you look at what's happening in Syria now and what's happened since 2011. 
But I remember one time we were, oh, where were we? We were somewhere and he was giving a talk. I don't know if you were at a park somewhere, but I know that we were somewhere and Imam Zaid was giving a talk and he said, you really, you know, i.e. the students that were there that, that, had, that had assembled, he was saying, you need to take advantage of this because this moment is not going to come back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's such a, it was such a prescient thing for him to say. And at the time, Syria was very stable. I don't think any of us could have imagined yeah. that yeah. what took place in 2011 was going to happen. So, you know, so I just, subhanAllah, I mean, it's like on the one hand, hindsight is 2020, you know, today in my 40s, of course, there's a lot of nasiha that I wish I could have dispensed to my 19-year-old self. <laughs> but I'm so happy that I, I went when I did, because I don't know that the way that my life unfolded after that, going to college, you know, uh, getting married, starting a family, would not, would not have allowed uh, for that that experience of hijra in Syria, mm-hmm. so Alhamdulillah, I'm happy that uh, that I went when we did, even though I was not the the best student, um, you know, to for you know living up to the standards of my amazing teachers. So, you know, so in terms of my teachers, I always count my my parents as my first teachers. Um, but, you know, they were inspired to, to spend time in Syria after we'd been in Iran. And that's actually part of the story because my parents uh, embraced a very ecumenical understanding of Islam. And by ecumenical, what I'm saying here is that even though they identified as, as, as Ahl al-Sunnah, certainly, they were never... Uh, they were never into sectarianism and they had friends from across the political and ideological spectrum. They, they were firmly committed to Muslim unity and not just in theory, but in practice, because I can't think of too many Sunni families from the United States that picked up and moved and lived in Iran as our family did. So they, mashallah, really practiced what they preached. Um, and, you know, it was a, I should probably write a book about this if <laughs> my memories are still, you know, alhamdulillah, as long as I, you know, I kind of still have some, some uh, um, sort of, uh, I, I guess, uh, cogency in terms of these memories here, but um, it was an interesting time to be in Iran. It was like 11 years after the revolution. So, you know, we really wanted to study, but we kind of ran into obstacles being Sunnis because enrolling in the school that we enrolled in, they just didn't have any idea of you could actually do this in these Sunnis. There were, mm-hmm. there were definitely efforts to convert us mm-hmm. to Shiism. And uh, even though we certainly met individuals that were committed to the idea of Muslim unity when we, when we lived in Iran, those sectarian hurdles were very high and they were difficult to clear. So it is, it's really, it was really after that experience that my my parents, um, you know, they found themselves in conversation with Imam Zaid and Um Hassan. They were like, you know, we're we're in Damascus now, and we're at this school called Abu Nur, and you should really check it out. And then my mom also had maintained uh, a friendship with uh, a really amazing um, Syrian American woman who was part of a network of um, of Syrian women scholars. And uh, she'd also encouraged my mom to think about Syria. 
And I'm so grateful to her, you know, just out of respect for her privacy, I won't say who she is, but Syria was, um, you know, Syria was a center, of course, historically, we know it was a center of Islamic learning. And even though um, we know the Islamic da'wah in Syria certainly suffered many setbacks under the Ba'athist regime, you know, one of the things that the, the women's network in Syria was able to maintain was some continuity in Islamic education. And um, so my mom said, you know what, I, I think we should try this out. So that's how we ended up in, in Damascus. And I was kind of like struggling because I'm like, oh, we'd just been in Iran. Then we came back to the US for a couple of years. I was probably going through some late teenage angst and trying to figure out who I was and my place in the world. But that's actually how we found ourselves in Syria. And to be honest, I don't think I deserved to have the teachers that I had, but I had some amazing teachers. I remember one of them, you know, my mom's friend, our dear Sheikha, may Allah preserve her, saying, looking at me and my sister and saying, you need to learn Quran and you need to have a teacher. And we're like, oh, you know, you know, we can take our time with this and, you know, our parents can teach us. We don't really kind of see why we need to have, you know, anything kind of formal or structured. It was a very kind of arrogant response. <laughs> looking back on it, I see just like that. And that, 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 kind of American arrogance and individualism. It was just, <laughs> you know, we didn't see it. We didn't see it at the, at, 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 the, at the time, but looking back, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we said that. You know, but ultimately, alhamdulillah, we did enroll at the school at Abu Nur. And even though I think, I wish that we'd taken more time off to learn Quran, we did enroll in the program at Abu Nur and alhamdulillah had a good experience there. And we had also um, teachers with whom we studied privately including Sheikh, Sheikh Muhammad Sukkar, an amazing teacher of Quran and Tajweed, who for the life of me, I don't know why he was willing to let these two young, <laughs> two young clueless American girls show up to his house at seven o'clock in the morning to study Quran, but he did. And may Allah Ta'ala reward him infinitely. So we had some amazing teachers, Sheikh Ahud al-Habash. There's a documentary about her called The Light in Her Eyes. She was our theology teacher at the school that we went to, Abu Nur. And I realized after the fact, because she was so unassuming, mashallah, I realized after the fact that uh, she had her own Quran school that she'd established for, for girls in Damascus when she herself was only 18 or 19. So I just had some amazing teachers and I still remember them like it was yesterday. And for those who have passed on, may Allah Ta'ala have mercy on them. And for those who are still with us, may Allah preserve them and may Allah reward all of them immensely. Thank you so much for, for sharing about your teachers. Um, what was it like um, returning to the U.S. after studying Damascus or, in, or even just like living in the Muslim world for that long? Um, was it hard to come back? You know, it, it was because there's a, you know, the thing that might be challenging about when, when you go on this hijrah to seek knowledge is that, you know, it's, there's a certain amount of self-selection going on. And what that means is that you've decided that you want to do this and you've decided that you want to be in the sahba of people who are like-minded. Mm -hmm. So you're surrounded by students of Islamic knowledge. You're sitting at the feet of uh, mashayikh, of male and female scholars. You're in these environments, you know, so you go, for example, you know, say from the classroom at Abu Nur, 
to um, the masjid or the musalla there, to someone's home where you do a dhikr and, um, you know, they're, they're, very rarely are you in an environment that is uh, devoid, you know, of dhikr. Mm-hmm. You know, you're even, even, you know, subhanAllah, even in a place like Syria, which was quite secular, you know, you kind of had that juxtaposition of people who were deeply devout with, you know, a, you know, a very secular government that was hostile to religion. Even then, though, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that Syria is like a center of Islamic spirituality going back centuries. And that's something that no, you know, no sort of, <laughs> um, you know, no regime, no matter how repressive can ever eradicate. So, you know, the the very air is steeped in the adhan and remembrance of Allah. So that's something that I really, I really, really miss that, you know, and for me, I did experience this culture shock because, you know, coming back to the United States, even being in Muslim circles, is just not the same. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, think about a recipe, you know, um, one of the things that we really kind of enjoyed was sampling the cuisine in the Middle East. And then you come back to the United States and it's like, you might try to replicate it. You might try to, you might go to a Middle Eastern restaurant, but you realize that it's not the same because the soil is not the same. The water is not the same. The microbes are not the same, right? Um, it's, it's very, very, very different when you try to kind of replicate, uh, you know, those recipes outside of that that environment. And similarly, when you're trying to live Islam now on a college campus, you know, it's, it's, it's just a very different experience. And of course, you can certainly try to find like-minded people, but you're always coming up against the influence of, of secularism, Mm -hmm. of liberalism, you know, of a very kind of permissive, even hedonistic environment on college campuses. And my goodness, today it's just sort of amplified with all the kind of, um, you know, the the sort of um, identity politics that are that are that are taking place today. So it was definitely a bit of a culture shock, mm-hmm. you know, when you kind of go from a very kind of cloistered environment to where you rarely have, for example, interaction with members of the opposite sex, to where you're in this kind of like co-ed environment on these, on these college campuses, even within the MSA itself. So there was definitely an adjustment period. And I think I, I, I would say I probably struggled. Looking back, I would say um, I struggled coming back from Damascus. And alhamdulillah, I never, I never fell off of my practice of, of, of the faith. And alhamdulillah, I always you know, kept my hijab and these other practices. But I think that there was definitely kind of a period where I kind of felt a little bit lost, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just drawing on some of the things you said, um, you know, I think often um, there is like kind of this connotation of like, if you go like overseas to study, um, you know, as a woman, like it's very hard to find scholars that will teach you, um, or it's just not as accessible for women. And it sounds like you didn't necessarily have that experience. Um, can you just talk a little bit about like, you know, as a woman in Damascus, you know. Um, like, was this accessible to you? And, you know, if so, like, um, or if not, like, how can we make it more accessible? Things like that. You know, well, I think Syria is unique. And, and you know, I've, I've, so I, I've, of course, I've lived in Iran, lived in Syria, visited other places in the Middle East um, and in Europe, you know, and, and my kind of 
my, my conversations, my, my reading, my research, I do get the sense that there's something very unique about the culture of women's scholarship in Damascus. Mm-hmm. Now, not to say that there are not other places in the Muslim world, you know, whether we're talking about um, uh, places in West Africa or Southeast Asia, or even other places in the Middle East and South Asia, you know, mm-hmm. where you can find, uh, you know, um, networks of women scholars. But I think that, I, I, I think the, just that the, what I would say was very unique about the Syrian experience was that um, the women there did not actually shy away from, in fact, they actually embraced the idea of tarbiya for women by women. So for example, Sir Hiba, in other places in the Muslim world, um, it, it may be to where, yes, you have women who are students of Islam, but you know the structure of that environment is quite hierarchical in that mm-hmm. they are still ultimately kind of deferring to the authority of a, of a male sheikh. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but just to understand the differences there in terms of uh, how we view religious authority, right? Do we view women as being able to actually achieve a certain level of authority within the Islamic sciences? Do we actually view women as being qualified to attain the rank of mufti or sheikh or mujtahid? These are very important questions. And I think for the, the women's network in, in Syria, and they're called, they're called the Qubaysiyat, you can read about them. There are books now and, uh, about the, and, and articles about the, the women's network. But, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, what I really appreciated Sir was that they didn't view female gender as a barrier and not just in terms of accessing our most basic or foundational Islamic sciences, but also more advanced study of Islam. You know, they did not view female gender as an obstacle to ones actually being able to to have students and disciples, right? So they had this idea of the sheikha is is an idea that they are actually going to embrace. Whereas in other settings, right? Uh, whether we're talking about the setting of the Sufi tariqa or we're talking about other venues, I don't know that there's necessarily a similar embrace mm-hmm. of a woman inhabiting that role. And I think that's very, very, very important to understand that. So it's something that I really appreciate about um, my experience in Damascus. Having said that, though, I don't know that Syrians universally embrace that. You know, there were obviously some Syrians that might have uh, critiqued that notion. And... Um, you know, but it was really interesting to kind of see that that respect, you know, for women's scholarship. Um, you know, but at the same, but by the same token, um, Sister Heba, there were experiences we had in Damascus where there were teachers, and the Qubaysiyat themselves will say this, where there were male teachers who would not teach women. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of sort of barriers, um, I would love to to have kind of a campaign of re of re-education to mm-hmm. where more conservative male scholars who tend to be older, right, understand that they have a duty to educate not just men, but to educate women. And that's so important because often there would be kind of a, a sort of a, a demarcation line. In other words, we'll teach women X, Y, and Z, but not A, B, and C, for example, right? Or as women, we see that you might need to learn the rules of uh, maybe uh, that, pert- that pertain to marriage 
or nursing or, you know, or IE women's fiqh, but beyond that, we don't see why you need to gain access to that. And I think that type of thinking need, needs, to, needs to change. Well, thank you. Um, that's beautiful insight. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, you mentioned how you got to Knoxville, but um, just a little bit more about this year's seminary, how it was founded, uh, the vision for it, and sort of your role there. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the story of how I actually got to Knoxville is interesting. So, you know, I, I begun to establish a friendship with members of the community through attending the retreat I mentioned. It was called the Appalachian Retreat, um, you know, East Tennessee. And that's where Knoxville is, is known for the mountains. So, you know, so initially in 2010, um, the retreat was a partnership between the Muslim community of Knoxville and Seekers Guidance. And then after that, um, it was mainly just um, uh, MCK, as we call it and uh, bringing in teachers from different um, different parts of the United States. And so it was, it kind of became um, something that my family and I, you know, we, we looked forward to in the summer. It was kind of our, our summer vacation, even though I was teaching, right? So it just kind of, um, we just sort of became friends with members of the community that way. And it led to an invitation to actually move here. And the story of how that happened is actually interesting it's kind of um it's it's kind of funny in that um sometimes that it's it it kind of illustrates how that somehow these life-changing conversations can take place in the midst of very mundane moments so i was out shopping i was in the uh, sitting in my car um in the parking lot of a walmart in lawrenceville georgia this is one of the suburbs north of atlanta where we lived um, and I got this call from Brother Nadim Siddiqui, and uh, who's one of the original founders um, of Tasir Seminary, and uh, also uh, a, a longstanding board member of the Muslim community of Knoxville. And he'd been attending the retreats and supporting the retreats. And he said, I remember he said, I'd like to, to, to invite you all to think about moving to Knoxville. So Alhamdulillah, you know, after that conversation, I, I spoke to um, my husband, lawyer Hamu, and we we came up and we met with Brother Nadim, and and he kind of pitched this idea for a uh, um, women scholar in residence. That was actually my official title. <laughs> it's a very lofty title, mashallah. It's not one that I actually use, to be honest, because I'm not a fan of titles. But I think to downplay it is actually unfair to Estad Nadim and Sheikh Hassan Al-Ashab, who's the other the other co-founder of Tasir Seminary, because, you know, their their vision of um, their vision was let's create a space for a platform that is fully supported for a female scholar to join our community, and that's actually very, it's very pioneering in that even now I even though it's an idea that. Um, you do find more communities embracing this idea of having a woman in a visible role, whether it's, you know, as a scholar in residence or a da'iya or a chaplain, i.e. there's more understanding and I think maybe awareness of why it's important, Sister Hiba. At that time, it was like almost unheard of. Yeah. So, you know, outside of perhaps maybe a handful of women serving as chaplains in more secular college environments. So, you know, it was something, so I, you know, after making a great deal of istikhara and consulting with family, because, you know, we, outside of living in the Middle East, we'd always lived in Atlanta. That's mm -hmm. where my family is. That's where my, my, the family of my late husband is. So, 
you know, we had to have a lot of conversations around this, but ultimately our istikhara, you know, directed us to, uh, to, to make that move to Knoxville. And, you know, looking back, I mean, it, it sort of, I remember kind of like, you know, thinking, well, you know, it's just, yeah, I'm going to be teaching some classes at the masjid and what have you. But, you know, I think that we need to kind of look at it more strategically. And I think with a more of an appreciation for the, the, the historicity of it in that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one thing, you know, of course, most communities have an understanding that we have to have religious leadership, we have to have an imam, we have to have a qarit, you know, we have to have teachers, we have to have an Islamic school. Alhamdulillah, uh, there, there definitely has been growing awareness and support over the last decade at, uh, in terms of having youth, uh, youth uh, directors. You know, when I came up to you know, coming of age in the 1980s and 90s, you know, you would have been very hard pressed to ever go to a masjid and find anything for youth, much mm -hmm. less the idea of a youth director. If you'd mentioned that, I guarantee you people would have said, oh, that's a Christian thing, right? So alhamdulillah, our community has really grown up a lot. We have matured, you know, but the idea of having a woman on board, I think is still kind of a novel idea. Mm -hmm. So that's why I just really want to acknowledge um, I'm so deeply indebted to Astad Nadim Siddiqui and Sheikh Hassan al-Ashhab for their vision. So I've been a part of the Taysir family, mashallah, we call it a family, um, you know, since uh, 2014. And they just embraced uh, my family with open arms. Um, and I don't know where I'd be without them today, to be honest, because when my husband passed away, and 20 October 2015, the seminary had just gotten started. And then within two to three weeks of our first class, calamity strikes. And I just, I don't know where we would have, um, I don't know where we'd be today without the leadership, um, you know, and uh, the amazing spiritual insight of Sheikh Hassan, may Allah preserve him and his family and Ustaz Nadim and the community's support. This is a very, it's a very, very special community here in Knoxville. May Allah reward them immensely. Um, you know, why was it so important in that moment um, for them to, to have you on board? Like what, um, and I, I don't mean to sound like disrespectful, like what's, what's the need of, um, you know, a woman scholar in residence, you know, why, why should more communities have something like that? You know, the community here, Sister Hiba, you know, we, we, one of our, I think in terms of our aspirations, like what's an organizing principle of the community here? It boils down to one phrase, it's prophetic community. So, and, and, and our understanding of prophetic community informs the work we do at Tastier Seminary, the work we do at the Masjid and the Muslim community of Knoxville, you know, our worldview, whether that's within our family settings, within the institutions and beyond. And if you look at the, the community of the prophet, you find that, you know, and I know people don't like the term empowered. I'll find, I'll figure out another one, but the prophet <laughs> empowered women from an early, I mean, look at how his formative years he spends around all these amazing women, right? And look at the woman he marries. Look at the Ummahat al Mu'mineen. Look at how he always respected and cherished women and had them as his closest advisors. You know, and I think about Sayyidina Aisha, she wasn't just uh, a teacher of women, but she taught the entire community. So it's not for people who would say, oh, this is some Western feminist uh, innovation. It's not. 
right? It has its origins in the Sunnah of the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, where he himself would set it, set aside special times, days and times to speak to the women and teach them, and where there were uh, women that he was training and spokespersons from from amongst the Ansar, right? We know that for a fact, and. And uh, so, you know, I think that this is not, I, I think this is really, when, when you talk about prophetic, the prophetic model of community, this is about the realization that our communities are only as strong and as vibrant as the individual members and families that make up our community. And how can we possibly expect to have strong individuals and, you know, intact and uh, cohesive families and vibrant communities if our women are sidelined and marginalized. So that's why this work is important. And that's why I think every community needs to have a plan for how we are going to train, educate, uplift, and empower women to take on those roles of leadership and understand that there are different roles, right? Not everybody I understand is comfortable with a public platform. But when you look at, for example, my dear sister Hiba, the makeup of conference goers, right? When we still had conferences <laughs> that we attended in person and inshallah, we'll be able to do that again soon. I mean, you're, you have audiences that are at least like 60% up or upward of uh, female audiences, but the teachers and speakers don't always represent the makeup of your audience. And I think that we want to definitely um, aim for more parity in terms of those young women, right? or young at heart women in that audience seeing themselves represented, you know, um, on the dais, you know, on that stage. So, and again, you know, I know for people who say, well, you know, this is not about the outward, it's not about the sort of externals. I understand that. We ask Allah Ta'ala to, 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 to purify and elevate the, the niya and intention of all of us. But look at how our young people are becoming disaffected from their faith. Look at the levels of agnosticism, atheism we're seeing amongst young people, mm -hmm. right? Look at the crisis of faith. A lot of these crises actually go back to issues of women and gender in Islam. So we have got to address this. And I think and part of that is making sure that we have women that are equipped to go out and do this work. You're, you also teach, uh, you're on the teaching faculty for about, um, can you talk a little bit about that experience and some of the benefits of having female only learning environments, but also, um, you know, is there a benefit to mixed learning environments or women learning from male scholars um, and, you know, the benefits of that as well? You know, I'm a beneficiary of so many different, you know, obviously so many different environments. So I see the advantages in both, Sister Hiba. You know, I'm so happy and so honored to be a teacher with the, the robot curriculum. I teach a class called Understanding the Muslim World. And for me, it's a labor of love. You know, it's I just because I want to support Sheikha Dr. Tamara Gray. Because she was one of my first teachers in Damascus. Oh. I still have my my uh my tajweed notes <laughs> our classes i mean it makes mashallah it, it, it makes me chuckle when i think about us sitting down in her living room and how she's mashallah uh, balancing motherhood because her children were quite young at that time and she's teaching us and she's got all these girls showing up and we're about as clueless as we could be mashallah <laughs> um, and how patient she was with us so I, you know, and that's the thing that's so amazing about uh, Rabata, the organization and the, and the program is called Rabat, 
because, you know, Sheikha Tamara was able to translate her own experience studying in Damascus uh, to this vision, which is, I think, so inclusive. Because one of the things about that I remember from, from Syria, dear Sister Hiba, is that sometimes it was hard to separate the, the kind of Syrian cultural practices from the way we would study, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, along with the, uh, with kind of like sitting with the scholar or the anse, because anse is the traditional Syrian title for the woman teacher or scholar. So part of sitting with the anse is that you embraced a, a kind of a Syrian way of dress and, and, and of comporting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And looking back, mashallah, I have a, it, 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 uh, I look back on it with a certain amount of nostalgia. <laughs> what, you know, what could be challenging was that some of the Anisat um, felt that you had to be a little bit Syrian, right? And, and so that's why I really appreciate what Sheikha Tamar is doing because as a convert, her vision naturally was more expansive in that she realized that you had to be able to tran- take the principles, right? Uh, what are the unifying principles and how can you translate them to our North American Muslim context where we are so incredibly diverse, right? Because ultimately you don't want people that are becoming Syrian, but people that are, uh, uh, that, that, that are able to take the best of that, uh, that spirit in Syrian Islam and making it accessible to people here, if that makes sense. So that's what I love because her organization, mashallah, is so embracing of so many Muslim women from all walks of life. And I love that. <laughs> so that's why I'm a part of, um, of, the, of the teaching faculty there. Uh, and, you know, and, and again, the thing that I, I really miss the most about Syria is that, you know, that, that idea of you have to have that women's uh, the women only space because there's a certain level of comfort and uh, that we find and support like you can relax in a way you know mm-hmm. that you can't do that co-ed space necessarily and very importantly it gives you that female role model mm-hmm. right because as much as I love to to sit in the lessons of the the shuyukh, the male scholars right they've never lived lives as women obviously mm-hmm. and they would be the first people to say that so, you know, there, there, there's something to be said about seeking to emulate that feminine mode of spirituality. And how does that look? The only way you do that is by sitting with female scholars and worshiping with them. And that's the thing about Syria. Oh my goodness, subhanAllah. In, in terms of like female role models of ibadah, I've never seen any women uh, that, 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 that reach that level. I mean, they're just amazing. They're amazing. Like you hear about this term prayer warriors. Well, they embody that. <laughs> Mashallah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, because a lot of women, surprisingly, Sister Hiba, in our American context, you know, it's not at all uncommon to come across women that have never prayed behind a woman. They've never heard a woman recite the Quran. It's just not, it's so foreign to them. But in Syria, that's not that was not an that was not a foreign concept, and I remember that with a lot of fondness. The gatherings of dhikr, qiyam al-layl, tahajjud behind the female imam, and that's something that that Sheikha Tamra uh, has brought with her, um, in, in in the Rabata approach, the Rabata and the Rabat curriculum. Inshallah, that's so special. Um, I just have one last question. Inshallah, we can close with this. Um. You know, as a, a woman, uh, why should one seek knowledge? And uh, why is there a need for 
for more uh, female students and inshallah more teachers of knowledge and a lot of people I've seen like they'll go and study but then you know they'll when they come back they're maybe shy to teach or um, you know that doesn't always translate in the way that a lot of men go overseas to study and they come back and it's like kind of like automatic and um, you know why why um, why why do we need more students and uh, female students and teachers of knowledge you know that that's a great question you know i i think for some of us sister Hiba, we're just drawn to lifelong learning whether or not we end up teaching is a different question right yeah. and uh you know so i think that you know and this is something Sheikh Tamra really emphasizes you know, this idea of, you know, kind of like the intellectual fulfillment, I think is a huge part of this. And I think for us as women, given our domestic responsibilities, given the child rearing work that we do, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of us maybe, you know, kind of go through this experience where, you know, as much as we love being in the home, as much as we love the work in the domestic sphere, you know, there after changing, you know, so many diapers and doing so many loads of laundry and cooking so many dinners, you know, you 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 do crave those moments of ibadah. Mm -hmm. You do you do kind of crave being able to kind of uh, be able to kind of challenge yourself, kind of intellectually, and that's fine. You mm -hmm. know, because I think some of the messages that we receive as women, and I understand why 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 we receive these messages in terms of you should look at your housework as ibadah. You know that there is no work that's more noble than raising the next generation of believers, and absolutely. I completely endorse that. But at the same time, I don't think we should ever dissuade women from studying, from learning Quran. So in terms of why we should encourage more women and more girls to study, right? There are those that will become teachers, certainly. Those that will become speakers, chaplains, leaders in their community, public spokespersons, du'at. Those are all roles that need, that need to be filled. But I think even for their own personal edification, why not? Because then you have a generation of wives and mothers and teachers and community workers that I pray are well grounded in the Islamic sciences. So, um, you know, I, 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 and I, and I believe in an education, not just in terms of this cliche of kind of knowledge is power, right? It goes beyond that. Um, knowledge can be powerful, but only if tied to a firm foundation of uh, absolute certainty because mm -hmm. do we not want to uh, to support the next generation of the strongest believers right and part of that is educating women mm -hmm. you know it always it puzzles me my dear sister Hiba say when I hear of a Quran program uh, and they don't have female students I don't understand that yes I know that you're not going to get a female imam to stand up and lead taraweeh of a mixed congregation but that's not what it's about Right, it is about making sure that the Quran is in, is 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 alive in the hearts of all of the believers, mm -hmm. male and female, young and old, in our community, and we achieve that through educating women. So that's why I very strongly uh, believe in the need to educate women and girls, you know, because it's not necessarily about oh, you know, having people on that public platform, yes, but it's also that that necessary work that's done behind the scenes. I always tell my students, start where you are, start in your family, start with that halaqa. You never know that you might be sitting and doing a halaqa somewhere that, that's never going to be, you know, uh, what's the word, publicized in any way, shape or form. It's not gonna be the, 
the, the, the, the, the kind of glamorous multimedia production of some convention somewhere, but you might say something in that halakha that maybe changes the life of that young person there. That, that young person that maybe is thinking about leaving Islam, that young person that's maybe thinking about even harming himself or herself, you don't know, but that you might be able to stop that and inshallah set them on a, on a, on a path of healing and mm -hmm. self-rectification. So this work is so important. Beautiful. That's such a beautiful note to end on. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much for all your time and sharing your story and all the beautiful advice and wisdom that came with it. Um, I'm really grateful for your time and, and for being able to hear um, hear about you and, and your own journey. Alhamdulillah, it was my pleasure, my dear sister Hiba. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you and your loved ones the best of the dunya and the best of the akhirah and salvation from the fire. Amin ya Yeah.